Well, let's make our confession. This is our year of jubilee. We expect manifestations of the Holy Ghost and power. We believe for financial miracles and miracles of healing in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We want to look at some scriptures that we've been focusing on here lately. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Folks, God has a power, spiritual force, a spiritual power that's available to break the yoke of anything that we can encounter. A defeating power. It's unseen. It's of the spirit. So it's an unseen power. Oftentimes it's an unfelt power. But whatever you're facing, whatever situations you and I find ourselves in, there's power to be free. Then we also looked at Isaiah chapter 10, verse 27. And it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder and his yoke from off thy neck. And the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. We've been talking about the healing anointing a little bit. So let's just go right to some of the scriptures that we found Matthew chapter 14. And when they were gone over, they came into the land of Gennesaret. And the men, when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all that country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment and as many as touched were made perfectly whole. Luke 6 tells us Luke's account of this verse 17 and he came down with them and stood in the plain and in the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem and from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases and they that were vexed with unclean spirits and they were healed and the whole multitude sought to touch him for there went virtue or power out of him and healed them all So we see a fantastic result, certainly as a result that was the will of God, because God is always against sickness. But we also found that that, that power, that anointing, has to be received or met with, with faith. Luke 4, verse 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for a read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed, anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Notice Jesus starts off, and it would make sense that he would use these same scriptures in, uh, every time he went to a new location, a new village or town. And he's claiming to be the one who is anointed with this, this supernatural power. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus is claiming to be anointed in, in all of these areas, empowered in each of these areas, and he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, this scripture is this fulfilled in your ears. And all bearing witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, you surely will say unto me this proverb, physician heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. So Jesus spent time in ministering in Capernaum before he went to Nazareth. And whatever he did, whatever results occurred there in Capernaum, you would expect the same, the will of God to be the same for Nazareth or any other city. And Jesus is straight, flatly telling them that he is anointed to do these things. If we summarize them, he's anointed to, to preach and or teach, and he's anointed to heal. Now, folks, that information in Genesaret changed everything about the territory where they lived. The word of Jesus' power, anointing power of the Holy Ghost had traveled to them, or at least Jesus expected that he had. And he's saying very directly, I am anointed for these purposes. Now Capernaum is less than five miles away from Genesaret. So when Jesus says something about the things that had been done in Capernaum, it would seem that he would be including the results in Genesaret to prove his point. So he says, surely you'll say unto you this proverb, whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet. 
and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And when they, they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him under the brow of the hill whereupon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went on his way. Now, folks, Mark's account of this, Mark chapter 6, verse 5. And he could there do no mighty work, save or accept that he laid his hands upon a few sick folks and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. Now notice verse 5. It doesn't say he wouldn't do anything. It says he couldn't do anything. Now this is where people jump the rails. Because of religious teaching. And tradition. Most everybody that I know of in the church. believes that because Jesus was the Son of God, he performed these healing miracles and other miracles that we have record of in the gospel. But notice, it says that he marveled because of their unbelief. He could there do no mighty work. He didn't have any healing miracles in Nazareth. Even though he just proclaimed from the scripture in Isaiah that it was the will of God for Nazareth to have the same healing results and miracles take place to serve them just like it was in Capernaum and in Genesaret where we read. Now Jesus says something that offends them. Look at the difference in the two examples. In Matthew chapter 14, it tells us that the men of that place took it upon themselves after hearing about the power of Jesus. They must have heard that he was healing the sick or else they wouldn't have had faith for, to take the action that they did. So the action that they took indicates to us that they knew first and foremost that Jesus could only perform miracles if they were uh, if they chose to accept him. Now, accepting is what? Well, we just read in Luke four that he said, "This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears." In other words, that's him saying, this, "These scriptures are talking about me." Now, we don't know if they had anything in their minds that would disqualify Jesus. We don't know if there was any resistance on anybody's part for the things to be done that the Scripture tells us was done. The actions of the people not the actions of God, the actions of the people in these two towns compared together show us what allows the power of God to flow freely 
And it shows us what stops the power of God from operating at all. The men of Genesaret took upon them to gather up all the sick that they could find. When the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all that country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased and besought that they might only touch the hem of his garment and as many as touched were made perfectly whole. If this garment became the touch point for the people of that region to be healed, then that would necessitate that the healing anointing can be saturated and carried in certain materials. Now, not every material will uh, not every material is used by God's will but if it's soaking up or saturating the cloak that Jesus wore then we can expect the same healing anointing to saturate cloths or other materials like materials to bring about a healing by God's will. Notice the people, the men of this place, the men of Genesaret, they just astound me. Whoever came up with the idea to gather all the sick people they could find and prepare for Jesus coming to their town by having these sick people waiting, waiting for him. But they just put themselves, in, or the, the men of that place, put the sick in the position where Jesus could walk by and they could reach out and touch him. Jesus didn't stop and minister to anybody. He didn't stop and preach to anybody a sermon. He didn't impose a list of rules or requirements upon the people that were sick. He didn't check the, the faith to see if their faith was great or small. He just simply walked through the crowd and brought heaven down to earth. There's a verse of scripture I want you to see in Deuteronomy chapter 11. Moses is talking to the children of Israel and he's impressing upon them the importance of accepting God's word and putting it first in their lives. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 21, that your days may be multiplied and the days of your children in the land which the Lord swore unto your fathers to give them as the days of heaven upon the earth. Now, when I think of days of heaven on the earth, 
first thing that comes to my mind is this situation in Genesaret that we've read about in Matthew 14 because it shows clearly God's will in the area of healing. It identifies the source of the healing power. And it brings about the blessing of God for those of us who have made ourselves his children or who he has made our children. Now in Acts chapter 10, when Peter is summoned to Cornelius' household and told by the the Holy Spirit to go with them doubting nothing. Peter starts preaching about Jesus. And one of the first things he talks about Jesus is the anointing power that was upon him. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. Who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. For God was with him. Now Peter didn't know too much during the earthly ministry of Jesus about the power of God there were several times where the power of God took place where he was the witness thereof but here in Acts 10 for 38 by the time he gets to Cornelius' household as directed by the angel and the Holy Spirit who told him what to do. He now is of an understanding of the unseen power that brings about healing mercy. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. How God empowered Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. Who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. For God was with him. Folks, that tells us beyond dispute that the sick are sick because they are oppressed of the devil. Every sickness and every disease, therefore, has of its source the devil himself and the curse that he unleashed upon mankind because of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. Now in Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 25, and a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing better but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said... If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue, it's the word power, had gone out of him, turned him about in the press, and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. 
But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. So we see it was her faith that caused her healing to take place. And it, the scripture defines her faith. Verse 27 again, When she had heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch by his clothes, I shall be whole. Well, what has she heard of Jesus? It's clear that she has faith in God or faith in Jesus that his garment will be saturated with the healing power of God so that she can simply just take advantage of the anointing of God on Jesus and take hold of what she wants. She said, if I may touch Buddy's clothes, I shall be whole. It doesn't say she said, if I can just touch him, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. But folks, if this is the thing that everybody is hearing about Jesus, then that outer cloak of Jesus or his garment that he wears day after day it would in many cases not every case but many cases perhaps it becomes the object and the vessel that carries the unseen power that she needs. But the same, same thing is true of everybody else that hears of Jesus. When she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Now, if she's heard of Jesus healing by the touch of his garment it would seem to me that the only way that that's going to produce faith in her is if it worked every time what I mean by that is that she's probably heard of either the results in Genesaret, where they gathered the sick from every quarter and just put them in a place where they could reach out and touch Jesus' garment. Well, this is not the same experience that she's experiencing in Mark chapter 5. Nobody's getting anything. Everybody is crowding around trying to touch or take hold of Jesus. And Jesus says the disciple, the multitude is thronging him. <clears throat> so that means that there's a lot of people that are touching him. But nobody's getting anything. 
Now think about the result that that might have upon the woman with the issue of blood. She's heard about Jesus healing multitudes. But there's not multitudes being healed in this case. She is strong enough in faith that she doesn't let the lack of results by the rest of the crowd, people that are reaching out and touching in just like she is, or just like she intends to. But this is not a multitude where the sick are gathered together or anybody is really taking hold of the healing power of God. Now this is a little further along in Jesus' ministry. So we would stand, it would stand to reason that as Jesus went further in his three years of earthly ministry, that more and more would be understood and greater and greater would be the result. But this woman in Mark chapter 5, she's not witnessing the same results that she's heard have taken place in Jesus' ministries in some other place. We don't know what other places, but Genesaret is, is identified. But not everybody got Genesaret's results. Now, the New Testament is full of doctrinal issues that deal with substitution. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in the first letter that he sent to them, and he talked to them about the ministry of reconciliation. He talked about how that we, as being made children of God, we've been reconciled by the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice that Jesus made. And that word reconciliation means exchange. So we've been given the ministry of exchange. Now the exchange that's being spoken of is that Jesus, by the will of God, had passed upon him the sins of mankind. The letter that's addressed to the Jews in Hebrews throughout the book, throughout the letter, I believe Paul wrote the, the book of Hebrews. But it's full of information about the sacrifice that Jesus made and the substitutionary work that was carried out by him. It talks about the scapegoat. that was chosen on the day of atonement. And the high priest would lay his hands on the scapegoat's head. And he would pronounce all the, the sins and transgressions that the people of Israel were guilty of. 
And then it was taken out into the wilderness and the scapegoat was turned loose. And it was left out in the wilderness to die for the sins and the wrongdoings of the Israeli people. And the Bible throughout the New Testament gives us a lot of information about the operation of faith. Because God doesn't want us to turn in to be like the people of Nazareth. Jesus is still anointed just as he was when he was here on the earth. And so the blessing of Abraham, which is described to us and teaches us that God's will is for us to prosper in everything that we do, to be able to stand guiltless before the throne of God, it teaches us how to receive from God in faith. Just as the woman with issue of blood received the healing anointing that was it, that saturated his garment, but in spite of the unbelief of the people, and we have to conclude that it was unbelief, because that's the only thing that the Bible tells us stops the power of God. In Nazareth, it stopped the power of God. And kept healing miracles from being performed. In Mark chapter 6. Verse 54. And when they were come out of the ship. Straightway they knew him. A couple of verses before tells us that this is Mark's account or rendering of the Genesaret experience. And when they were come out of the ship straightway they knew him and ran through that whole region round about and began to carry about in beds those that were sick where they heard that he was. And whithersoever he entered into villages or cities or country, they laid the sick in the streets and besought him that they might touch as it were but the border of his garment, and as many as touched him were made whole. Boy, can you imagine being alive in those days? Don't think about that too long, because Jesus said it was better that we were living in the day that we're in. But there was such a confidence. Certainly there would be a confidence in Jesus and on his part. But it rubbed off onto other people too. When they realized the power of God, the miracle power of God, 
was available to take hold of. They went crazy bringing in the sick into every quarter that they could find. Turn with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. The book of James is written by the half-brother of Jesus who became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he was martyred for his faith in God. Notice what he writes to the Jews. This is a letter that went to Jews that had been scattered by the persecutions. And he wrote, is any sick among you? Now the way he asked the question, it implies that there shouldn't be. We certainly wouldn't write to a church that way today. Is any sick among you? It would rather be written somewhere like, now the... 80% of you that are dealing with sickness. Is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Notice in verse 14, it says, is any sick among you? The way that the original text is written the thought that's being conveyed is hidden by the casual nature of the language this word sick means is anyone past doing anything for yourself there is one and only one relationship that is most important to God concerning you and that is that you know him Not that you accept him. He's writing this to people that have accepted God. Accepted Jesus' sacrifice for their own. Accepted the ministry of reconciliation or exchange. Accepted that Jesus was a substitute for us concerning sin and sickness. And so God's plan is for each and every one of us to experience the healing power of God simply by faith in his word between you and him. Another translation, rather than saying, is any sick among you, says, is any bedfast or bedridden among you? 
it's talking about people that have attempted on their own, gave it their best shot to walk by faith to obtain and receive their own healing. But there are certain situations where people need our help. But that's not first and foremost God's plan and purpose for healing. But what delights me here where it says is any sick or bedridden, bedridden or bedfast among you let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith shall save the sick this word save is the word heal and the prayer of faith shall heal the sick so in what we might consider to be the most difficult or extreme conditions of sickness and disease that condition is simply encouraged to ask God in faith his healing power for the healing power of God that would restore them and make them whole folks God cares so much about you and about me that he's made provision for healing from sickness and disease no matter how extreme the disease no matter how advanced the, the process of sickness it's just simply a slam dunk if there's something that we need that's beyond ordinary when it comes to sickness and disease. He says, let him call for the elders of the church. Well, the elders of the church must have some measure of the anointing power, the healing power of God that Jesus was anointed with And that's similar to what Mark 16 talks about. Jesus said, these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. One of those signs was that they'll lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Within well, each and every one of us as children of God have to have some measure of healing power residing in us So through the work of Jesus, we see that he's made us one in him. He's made us participants, partakers of the healing power of God. 
Not that each and every one of us is supposed to have a ministry of healing. The Bible doesn't indicate that. But it does indicate that we've got the life of God dwelling within us. And a part of that life of God can be ministered to others to bring about healing for their bodies. And in the extreme cases that would render someone unable to live their normal life, that's not looked at or considered by God as a difficulty of any, any possible way. God is absolute in his requirement of the blood of Jesus to pay the price for sickness and disease. Even as the scripture says, by his stripes we are healed. So we may have certain ways that we see sickness and disease. Some sickness and disease is greater than others. But no sickness and disease is harder than others. To use the word of God to relieve someone or free them from the yoke of bondage. I want you to turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 20. I'm going to start in verse 1 and read some of the details of this story. This is, in my opinion, the greatest prayer of faith that I can find in the Scripture. It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them others besides the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side of Syria. And behold, they which be in some place, which is in Gedi. And if Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord. And proclaimed a fast throughout all Judea. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah came they to seek, seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah in Jerusalem. In the house of the Lord before the new court. And said. Here's the prayer. Now they're facing five enemy armies. That out number them terribly so when it comes to military strength and might they're hugely outnumbered so Jehoshaphat stood on the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said oh please God help us help us help us we're in such trouble We know we're not worthy, but we've got a favor to ask of you. Here's his prayer. O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven? Now, most people would consider insulting God right off the bat, 
not the perfect way to pray. And rather than talking about their situation, they're talking about God. O God in heaven, O God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven? And rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thy hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? Folks, this may be just me, but I'm thinking that Jehoshaphat's got to hear of God from the first words that he speaks. Art not thou our God, who did drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and gave it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? And they that dwelt therein, and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If when evil comes upon us, as the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, that thou, then thou wilt hear and help. He's just made the case for God not being able to deny him. Notice that Jesus gave us the principles of this operation of this thing called faith in very simple terms. In Mark chapter 11, verse 22, he said, have faith in God. Verse 23, he goes on to say, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, means don't yield to your emotions because of what you see or feel, but shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Jesus is saying very simply this, when you and I found ourselves facing mountains of problems, or adversity our receipt of the power of God our deliverance from the oppression of the enemy depends more on us than it does on him because we've already got his word on the subject the only question is where are you and I going to land are we going to be in faith or are we going to be in unbelief God doesn't determine that. You do. So, he's just saying, God, didn't you tell us? He's basing his prayer on the word. Didn't you tell us that when armies or judgment or pestilence or famine comes upon us and we stand in this house and in your presence and cry unto thee in our affliction, you said that you would hear, hear and help. So he's putting God on the line. Not at God's dis, disfavor. God's looking for somebody that knows what he said he would do for them. And now, behold, the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldst not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. So, they've described the situation. We've got these enemy armies. Now, the only reason we have these enemy armies is because you wouldn't let us destroy them when we first came into the promised land. 
So they're standing against us. It's your fault. That's what they're saying. We could have dealt with them a long, long time ago, but you wouldn't let us. Behold, I say how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. Notice they recognize who the promised land belongs to. The promised land is God's, and he's given it to his people to inherit. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? Now you said if we called upon you in this house where your name and your presence is, you'd hear us. So are you going to judge them? Are you going to let them get by with what they've done? Wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company. We don't have any military strength against their armies that come against us. Neither do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. So they put God in remembrance of his word where he promised that he would deliver them. They recognize that this land belongs to them because it's the will of God. Folks, we need to take, take hold of some of these truths and recognize that sickness and disease that comes against our body the Bible says our body belongs to the Lord. So for the devil to, to strike us with sickness and disease is an attack against God, not just us. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives and their children. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. And he said, Hearken ye all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat. Thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by the reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and you shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed, for tomorrow go, down, uh, go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. Then they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so shall you prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord and that they should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and to say, Praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. 
So the first ones they put against the fight is the, is, are the singers. He appointed singers unto the Lord and that they should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and to say praise the Lord for his mercy endures together. His mercy endures forever. And when they began to sing and to praise, when they began to sing and to praise, not when they were given the word of the Lord through the prophet, not when they were told God's plan for their, for their tomorrow, when they began to sing and to praise. Now folks, what's changed? What's brought about something to praise God for? The armies are still out there. They're still committed to destroy Israel. So nothing from that standpoint, nothing from a physical standpoint has changed at all. But when you believe God and have chosen to accept his word as truth, then the declaration of that truth which in their case is that they won't have to fight. The declaration of that truth and the declaration of that victory becomes the groundwork of the foundation to receive the unseen delivering and victorious power of God when they began to sing and to praise the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. Now what if they hadn't sung in praise? What if they hadn't lifted their voice? Would the same things have happened? Folks, I don't have an answer for that. But it's without doubt that he's including the actions of Israel when they began to sing in the praise as a part of their victory. So I'm not sure if you can have a victory without singing and praising God for the answer because that is part of the operation of faith. So I'm not sure you can get that result without singing and praising God before the answer comes. But we've got ironclad evidence here in singing and praising because of what God has said and the deliverance that he has given to us through the sacrifice of Jesus brings results every time. When they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, utterly to slay and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of, Mount, of Seir, everyone helped to destroy another. And when Judah came toward the watchtower in the wilderness, and they looked under the multitude, and behold, there were dead bodies fallen to the earth, and none escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away the spoil of them, they found among them in abundance both riches with the dead bodies and precious jewels which they stripped off for themselves, more than they could carry. And they were three days in gathering of the spoil. It was so much. Now, folks, they're spoiling their enemies just like they had defeated them in military combat. They're spoiling their enemies in a battle that they never had to fight. 
They didn't, nobody even had to throw a rock. And because God has brought that victory to them, they're not shy in any respect to take the spoil off the dead bodies. It took them three days in gathering of the spoil. It was so much. And on the fourth day, they assembled themselves in the valley of Berkah. For there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that same place was called the valley of Barakah, whatever, until this day. Then they returned every man to Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat in the forefront of them to go again to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. God's means of rejoicing over your enemies is thanking him that they're out of commission. Folks, this is an all-star prayer of faith. There's not a whine in it. There's not a poor old lust attitude. There's not a why did you let this thing happen to me, Lord? No blaming God whatsoever. A clear understanding of who the devil is and therefore who your enemy is. For the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. I think we're living in one of the most important times in the history of the, of the history of the world, really, but the history of the church. And Paul wrote to Timothy, you may remember, and told him that we live in ter- perilous times, and the end time would be perilous times. The word perilous means dangerous, but then a secondary meaning is strengthless. So the Bible tells us that in the last days will be perilous times, days that are designed to rob you of your strength. But then when Paul continues to tell Timothy about that regen- that um perilous time he gives descriptions of, of a generation that could apply to any generation one of the first things he did is he said men will be lovers of their own selves well that's not unique to any generation specifically every generation is full of people that love themselves we've just got better technology and selfies and stuff like that to to use for it. But it's, it caused me to wonder, and I wondered about this for a long time, if the perilous times or the peril against the church will increase, as Paul indicates that it will, if the strengthless operation or the operations of the devil that are designed to destroy or to reduce our strength, if those things increase, then it looks like the devil is getting more and more powerful. And there was something I was praying about regarding 
those scriptures. And from my heart came the words, the devil's taking a greater, a bigger bite. The folks, the Bible says Jesus is coming back for a glorious church. Let me show you what glorious church looks like. John chapter um, John chapter 14 Beginning in verse 10, Jesus talking to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. He said, Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. But the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the very works sake. Verse 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me. He's not talking about his disciples. He's talking about the church, the body of Christ. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, must be important. He emphasized it, verily, verily. He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do because they go into my Father. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So Jesus said, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. I wonder if that would include the happenings at Genesaret. We see a smattering of it when the Bible tells us in the early part of the book of Acts that they laid the sick in the streets of Jerusalem hoping that Peter's shadow would cast over them. Now the Bible doesn't say it, but it implies it, that people were receiving healing by Peter's shadow that was crossing it over them. That's not exactly the same as touching the hem of Jesus' garment, but it's close. We don't have anything where Jesus healed anybody by shadow. But if we're going to do the same works as Jesus did, wouldn't that expect the things that we see recorded in the Gospels? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. I think one of the things that we should recognize that we've been saying for some period of time, this is the year of Jubilee for us. It's not the year of Jubilee for Israel. And I don't mean by that statement or confession that God's going to do something new or something different. But if we're looking to be the glorious church, and that's the purpose for this year of Jubilee for, that, that we've declared, 
that is a part of the year of Jubilee, I think we can expect and believe God for the healing anointing to be in such measure that everyone receives. Nobody left out. Everybody receives. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you shall ask or require in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Well, if we put a demand on the healing anointing of God, then we can fully expect the power of the Spirit that anointed Jesus himself to bring to bear in these last days in the church, the body of Christ, not just us. But I don't want to miss out on our part either. We can expect that healing anointing to be sufficient to break the yoke. The yoke of bondage, whatever the sickness and disease is. So we're living in a day where the devil takes a bigger bite. Now folks realize that there's nothing that I would ever try to do to make you afraid of the devil or instill fear in you in any possible way. And remember that when Jesus was here on the earth, other than the power that he temporarily delegated to the disciples, he's the only one He's the only body of Christ that there was on the earth at that time. And so the power of the devil or the attack against the devil, the attack of the devil against Jesus and the truth of his sacrifice, his substitutionary work. Jesus was the only way that the devil could attack God And we see of the temptations that he brought to Jesus. And we see throughout his earthly ministry that the devil would raise his head every now and then. But he was never able to stop anything that Jesus was sent to do. Other than when he was working, was able to work through people to make them fear and operate in doubt and unbelief. So if the healing power of God could not have been stopped by the devil, then regardless of the devil taking bigger bites in these last days, he can't stop the church now either. No matter what bite he's taking, no matter what perilous times he's bringing, no matter what circumstances he raises up, in his attempt to dislodge us from our faith in God.
Remember in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus sends the 70 out to heal the sick and to tell about Jesus coming to their towns, get them ready. Now, when they went to these towns and told them what Jesus said, there was the opportunity in these towns to operate as they did, the, as the people did in Genesaret. They could gather the sick and, and just keep them ready for Jesus' return or appearance in their, their town. And the 70 came back and said, Lord, even the devils are subject to us in your name. It indicates that they were surprised by the results they got. Now, folks, if those guys who weren't even born again and had a temporary assignment were able to overcome the devil in every respect, what do, what do you think it's like for his children of God? We're living in perilous times, certainly. But rather than strength-reducing times, it drives us back to the word where our strength is increased. And therefore, the, the attack of the enemy is broken. I'm looking for good things for the body of Christ. I don't believe our victory will be political. I don't believe our victory will be with just empty words or high-sounding speech. I'm looking for our victory to be magnified by the power of God that works through us as children of the Most High God. Say it with me. The Lord is good. And His mercy endures forever. I believe. For the healing anointing. That breaks the yoke of sickness and disease. That it increases more and more, week by week, to perform the works that God has intended for us to perform. Amen. Well, let's all stand. He that believeth in me, Jesus said. Does that include you? The works that I do shall you do also, he said. And even greater works than these shall you do because you go into the Father. And whatever you ask in his name, he will do it. Say it with me. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. God bless you, folks.
David.